As we turn our attention tonight to uh, the topic within the sequence of events uh, and, and considerations about the church, one holy Catholic apostolic body, we come tonight to the subject of a praying community. And so it would be appropriate that we begin with prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we bow before you this evening, creatures before their maker. Father, our hearts cannot comprehend, our minds cannot contain the glory that you are. And yet this evening, Father, as we seek to adore you and to sing your praises, And to learn more of you, we pray that by your Spirit, you would draw near to us. Father, as we draw near to the throne of grace, lead us, teach us, illuminate your word. We ask it in Christ's, our glorious Savior's name. Amen. I've given for you uh, on the printed page uh, a quotation Uh, Many of you are familiar with uh, Benjamin Morgan Palmer. Dr. Palmer was, of course, one of the ministers of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia for a number of years in the mid-1800s. He then went on to a longer and really uh, more renowned, in the world's eyes, pastorate in New Orleans at First Presbyterian Church of New Orleans. But in 1894, Dr. Palmer wrote a book called the theology of prayer. And I've given one quotation from it just to get you a a sense of the glory, a sense of the power, a sense of the majesty of the theology behind what a praying community looks like. And this is his quote. I'll read it as your eyes follow along. The comprehensive act in which they, they refers to the creatures, those of us gathered in this room tonight. The comprehensive act in which they all embark is the homage of an intelligent and eternal worship. To this end was man invested with dominion over the works of God's hands, that as the priest of nature he might walk through the aisles of her vast cathedral and lead the whole choir of earth in chants of thanksgiving and joy. It is his office to gather the inarticulate praises of this dumb world in his censer, investing them with his own intelligence and thought, and lighting them at the fire of his own devotion, and then as the voice of nature to pour the flood of praise forever upon him who has created all for his own glory. And as we stand at the threshold of an examination of the concepts given to us in Scripture, what is the precedent we'll look at tonight, principally from the New Testament? What is the precedent for corporate prayer? Given the time constraints, we have to focus one or the other. I've chosen corporate prayer as our focus rather than personal or secret prayer, Uh, although many of the principles, of course, apply across both types. We'll look at the power of corporate prayer. We will look at the 
pattern of corporate prayer and then uh, at a very non-academic level some of the practicalities of corporate prayer. Follow along with me if you would on the outline. I've given you first there a couple of quotations principally from the New Testament. All of these, I'm sorry, from the New Testament. But I want us to take time, and if you have a Bible in hand, please feel free to open it and to follow along. Uh, Or if you have one on your iPhone or iPad, obviously do that. Uh, If not, I've given you the key portion of each text that I would like us to briefly consider together. Four different aspects of the precedent of corporate prayer. The first of these from Acts chapter 2, the well-known passage about the life of the early church. Quote, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The emphasis there I would like to dwell upon for a moment is the word devoted. They devoted themselves to this praying together. It means that they dedicated, they committed, they were diligent about, they were intentional about Spending time together in this activity, it did not randomly take place, haphazardly take place. It took place because they were, quote, devoted to it. How serious should a congregation be about devotion to corporate prayer? Many of you have either read books by Richard Bues, B-E-W-E-S. He is now retired. He's a uh, Church of England uh, priest uh, who lives in London. And uh, he was for many years the rector of All Souls in London. He's a close personal friend of Billy Graham, by the way. Uh, He and Billy Graham literally have a mutual pact that if one of them dies, the other one will preach the funeral service for the one dearly departed. He recently told me that it's sort of a race now to see which of them might be the last man standing, but they said, you know, you need to go to your friend's funerals because if you don't go to theirs, they will not come to yours. But Richard wrote a book called Equipped to Serve. And if you look at the bottom of page three of your outline, you'll see I've given you three particular books or references for additional reading and from which I've taken some of these thoughts. And one of those is Richard's little book from 2013 published by Christian Focus, Equipped to Serve. The question at the moment is how devoted should a congregation be to corporate prayer. And this is what Richard says on page 78 of Equipped to Serve. A church, before appointing any volunteer workers within the life of the fellowship, whether youth workers, children workers, home group hosts, Sunday welcomers and greeters, or officers of the church, should first put the question to every one of them, quote, As one of the members of this congregation, will you pledge to be at the regular prayer meeting? He goes on to say, if the answer is, well, I wouldn't have time for that right now, then the church's reaction should perhaps be, well, then let's delay until you do have time. And Richard says in that way, 
the whole body begins to gain the sense of priority, what does it mean to be devoted to corporate prayer? We look in the second place to the short passage from Acts 4 and a portion of verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. The portion I want to focus on is voices together lifted up to God. Someone has written, I don't recall whose thought, I would love to give attribution to them, that to pray in secret is like one instrument playing alone. Beautiful notes, a beautiful melody, but one voice. Whereas corporate prayer is a symphony. All of the instruments, some playing harmony, some playing melody, different notes, but woven together into a much richer fabric that rises before the throne of heaven. And it's that symphony that is corporate prayer. Different dialects, different accents, different life experiences, different translations of the Bible, one or the other may be quoting, but all woven together into a beautiful symphony that rises before our Maker. In the third place, we look at the short passage quoted, again, just a portion of Acts 12, and at verse 12, and the emphasis here is upon the simplicity of the gathering in a nondescript place. Peter went to the house of Mary. Now remember, Luke is simply writing the history. This is just the facts. This is just what happened. Peter went to the house of Mary, and then he goes on to identify her. She was the mother of John, the one whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Prayer is the most spectacular unspectacular event that happens in the life of a fellowship. And they meet at a house, or they meet in a room, or they meet at an office, or they meet on the street, and in huddles of two or two hundred, they gather and raise their voices together in a symphony of prayer. And then in the fourth place, the posture of prayer. This is in Acts chapter 20 when Paul has determined that he needs to leave Ephesus and he's gathered together the elders from the church at Ephesus. And it says that Paul had, when Paul had said these things, he knelt down, I'm not so much focused on the kneeling, as the spontaneity. Do you see the scene? He's with the elders. He's given them some final instructions. We don't know where they were, presumably just somewhere in the city. And then spontaneously he kneels and prayed with all of them, the precedent for corporate prayer. Tonight we also want to look together, if you keep following with me on the outline, at the power of corporate prayer. I'm one, I apologize for doing this, who likes alliteration. I guess I'm still stuck in the second grade, perhaps. Uh, I really like my second grade teacher, and we learned rhyming words. And ever since then, it's a hook that helps me Remember things. So the precedent of corporate prayer, and secondly, the power of corporate prayer. I want us to look at a couple of these texts together, one that 
has to be included is from the Old Testament, and that is this brief portion from Acts. I'm sorry, from Exodus 17. Follow along again in your Bible or on your sheet. This is that scene when Moses has sent Joshua out to fight the Amalekites, and Amalek is on the the king, and the forces are down on a valley floor in front of Moses as Moses and Aaron and Hur are watching what takes place in the battle. And this is the narrative that we're given from Exodus 17. Whenever Moses held up his hand, in other words, when he was in prayer for what was going on on the battlefield before him, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. We'll come back and comment shortly about the frailty of human creatures gathering to pray. So they took a stone and they set it under him and he sat on the stone while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. Can you see them? Moses seated on a stone And the two men holding his hands upward in prayer. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. Friends, prayer does not precede the battle. What Exodus 17 is telling us is simply this. Prayer is the battle. On Sunday night a few days ago, we had the privilege of hearing Dr. Douglas Kelly preach to our congregation in that lovely eastern North Carolina accent. And one of the things that Doug has done is to write a book on prayer. It's also on your suggested reading list at the end of page three. If God already knows, then why pray? Interesting theological question, isn't it? If God's omniscient, knows all things, he's omnipotent, he controls all things, why would he need the creatures? Why would he need his beloved children, the saints, to pray? And this is what Doug has said about Exodus 17 on page 137 of If God Already Knows, Why Pray? If a church as a whole really starts believing Exodus 17 and they teach about prayer, then the prayer meetings in the evangelical churches all over the world will fill to overflowing every week. They will no longer be held in small downstairs classrooms, but up in the main sanctuary. Indeed, if we, look ser- if we really took seriously about God's word, the teaching on the power of prayer, our churches could not accommodate those who would come to pray. As you know, Doug is quite the historian, and he goes on and concludes in this paragraph, we would have to rent tents, huge tents, as they did in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the Southern United States during the days and weeks of prayer that were connected with the 1858 to 1859 Revival. If we simply believed Exodus 17, prayer is the battle. Look with me also in uh, that 
point B at the very bottom of the first page. And we see from Acts chapter 4 another one of the manifestations of the power of prayer. You know, every time something happens in Scripture, the first time that it happens, the Lord tends to make a more graphic example of things in order to show the force either of his judgment or of his blessing. And then often in Scripture, at later times, there will not be the same manifestation. Not showing that there is less power or judgment or whatever the case may be, but simply showing that at the outset of this phase, the Lord is demonstrating visibly, tangibly, openly before the eyes of human creatures the effects that are going on. And this is the case in Acts chapter 4. This is the early church again. And we're told in verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Whenever we gather in this place or any other, small or large groups, and we pray, try to train the eyes of the soul to see the shaking that is going on and to hear the rumblings of the movement of the hand of the Lord as he responds to the prayers of the saints. I've given you at the top of page 2 the well-known quotation from Ephesians 6, equally applicable to secret or personal prayer as well as to corporate prayer. The point again being that we are engaged in a conflict, or as Dr. Palmer says again in his Theology of Prayer, that when prayer happens, the seen world and the unseen world come together. And we notice the emphasis there in Ephesians 6 that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, just the tangible ones and things around us, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then look at the admonition, the therefore that Paul gives. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, praying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then finally, only one more passage, one of Dr. Kelly's favorites, again in the book, If God Already Knows, Why Pray?, And he also, uh, Dr. Kelly, when he was our Thornwell lecturer many years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, gave an entire series of addresses on prayer and focused on Revelation chapter 8 in one of his sermons. Revelation 8 is that well-known portion in which the Lamb has opened the seventh seal. And we're told that when the seventh seal was opened, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We'll come back and talk more about silence in corporate prayer in a few minutes. But the greater point of the moment goes on and 
I've given you the quotation from verses 3 through 5 of Revelation 8. Again, let the hearts, eyes, and ears hear and see what the text is teaching us. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. This is before God Almighty. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Someone once asked Charles H. Spurgeon to tell them the secret of his powerful preaching. How was it that every time he stood in the pulpit at the tabernacle there in London, that many would come forward, converts would come into the kingdom, missionaries would go out for the kingdom. So much was happening. And he quietly smiled, took the guest down to the room in the basement below the sanctuary there in London, quietly opened the door and said, this is the secret of the power. And inside was a small group of faithful men and women from his congregation in prayer. The prayers of the saints unleash the power of God's ministry through the Holy Spirit in ways that we do not know or understand. Now, Dr. Palmer probably understands it better than I do. You've got about 378 pages of explanation, but it all goes to the point there is power in corporate prayer. Let's look in the third place at the pattern of corporate prayer. I've given you just three points here. One is that when we pray together, when we gather as we shall hear shortly this evening or on other occasions, what do we do? And the first is that we focus on spiritual as well as physical needs. I've given as an example Colossians 1 verses 9 through 14. You can do the same thing with Ephesians 1 or with many other texts in the New Testament. And that is go and look at the scripture with the question in mind, if Paul were here tonight, what would he be praying for? And look at the examples of the things that he says that he is praying for the saints at Colossae. He says, when I pray for you, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you will walk in a manner worthy of his calling, that you will be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, etc., etc., etc. The words are on the page in front of you. The point being, as we pray, not simply to lift up the physical or material needs, but instead to equally, or I would say with greater emphasis, be conscious to pray for the spiritual needs of the congregation or within our families, if that's the context of your family group prayer or any other subgroup. Some years ago at the farm, we had a, a John Deere Gator, you know, one of those little things that are really fun to drive around. It's kind of like a really souped up golf cart. You know, hauling stuff. You need one, right? It's not a want, it's a need. Well, we had this gator, and it runs on regular gasoline. But some less than intelligent person 
put diesel fuel into the engine of the Gator. It ran for about six seconds and then died in a cloud of blue smoke. So I call up the John Deere dealer over in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, and I said, hello, this is Ken Wingate. He said, I don't know who you are. I said, well, I know who you are. You're a John Deere dealer. I need your help. And I explained what had happened, and I said, can this be remedied or is it dead? He said, oh, no, 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 no. It's an easy fix. I said, how much is it going to cost? And he said, well, let me look that up. And I could hear him clicking some computer keys, and he came back, and he said, 36 cents. And I said, sir, say it again, please. I thought the cell phone was bad. He said, 36 cents. I said, how can it cost 36 cents? He says, this ain't, it ain't nothing but a little plastic fuel filter. All it costs is 36 cents. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm a lawyer. I don't even know where that part is inside the engine, let alone how to get out the bad one and put in a new one. I need parts and service. And he said, oh. <laughs> well, in that case, it will be $200.36. <laughs> we need the parts and the service. We need the physical material needs, but way more than that, we need the service. We need the spiritual things that the Lord has stored up that he wants to give us. You see there, secondly, from 1 Timothy 2, chapter 1, that we are encouraged to pray, as we are uh, taught there by Paul, with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving. Now, we don't have time for a word study on each of these tonight, but entreaties would be basically heartfelt pleas to God. Prayers would be the more common term, just the gener generic word uh, in the original text for obtaining good things from above. Intercessions, what does that mean, obviously? Praying on behalf of others. And then finally, thanksgivings, the word being Eucharistia, that is, praises and thanks. We are to be comprehensive in the scope of our praying together. What are the elements that we would want to pray for when we're together? Well, we definitely want to hit many of the same elements as we would in personal prayer. The traditional breakdown, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, isn't just a cute word that someone thought of. It's actually in the scriptures. Uh, if you do get your hands on Dr. Palmer's book, uh, by the way, if you can't find one, this one will be for sale. I've got to pay for that gator somehow. He explains that it's biblical, such as from Nehemiah chapter 9. We don't have time to turn to that text tonight. I hope you'll do that later. And see how in Nehemiah's day, when the assembly took place and Nehemiah was leading the nation in prayer, there were those verses that I've marked out for you on the outline in which they gave adoration and praise to the Lord. These divisions are so clear in Nehemiah's prayer. And then confession of the nations and of the people's sins. And then thanksgiving for what he had done in the reconstruction of the wall and in beginning to return the people home and etc. And what he'd done for Israel in ancient days. And then finally, 
building to supplication. Someone has said that if we, in our time of prayer, never get off of the first point, never get past adoration, we have nevertheless accomplished the purpose. True prayer is not measured in volume, but rather in weight. And it's not that we need to get through it all. It's not that we need to throw the words out there before the Lord, because if we don't say it, he won't hear it. No, no, no. Get the heart in tune, and the rest will follow. I don't have time in one place when Dr. Palmer talks about adoration. He does one of the most stunning things that I've seen an author do. He simply goes through Scripture and for an entire page lists the titles, the names that are given to God. And he says, this could be our adoration and praise, just reciting the names of God, God the Almighty, God the Father, God the Maker of heaven and earth, the Holy One of Israel, our Father who art in heaven. On and on and on, adoration and praise. Well, let's come to some of the practicalities. Um, I really would love to run through these, uh, not so quickly that we blow past it, but the point is going to be, how do we do it when we get together? Or what are some of the precautions? Uh, This is a list put together by me. Uh, So if I've omitted things, uh, rebuke me, please, for failing to include them. Uh, If I've included things that ought not be here, rebuke me, please. One of these is that we should be brief. I like the idea of proportionality. If there are 20 people gathered and we have 20 minutes to pray before the worship service begins, let's roughly pray for about a minute each. If there are 200 of us gathered and we have 30 minutes to pray, that means that a handful will have 15 to 30 seconds to pray. And that generally speaking, some measure of proportion needs to be followed. Richard Buse, in that little book, Equipped to Serve, tells the funny story of how at a prayer meeting one time, he had invited another minister from another church to come and lead his congregation, his own congregation, Dr. Buse's, in prayer. And he asked the man to give a very brief introduction and then go to corporate prayer. Well, two minutes turned into six minutes, which turned into 13 minutes, and the man was still talking. They were on front of, in the front of the sanctuary. There were some large flower pots sort of arranged across the front. And so Buse drops to his knees and like a gorilla crawls across the stage unseen by the congregation on the other side of the flower pots and tugs on the pant leg of the fellow who wouldn't shut up in order to say, we gathered to pray, not to listen to a soliloquy. We need to be brief. A second of these, given an admonition the Lord gave us in Matthew chapter 5, be wary of practicing our righteousness before men. Now this one may seem to cut against the grain. In the one hand, I'm trying to encourage us to pray and to pray out loud and to pray frequently and all of that. And on the other hand, I'm saying don't... What the Lord says is... 
When you pray, not if you pray or whether you pray, when you pray, beware of those who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. In other words, if this is one who spends time in corporate prayer, public prayer, in order to be seen, and of course the Lord alone knows the motive, and is not in his own or her own prayer closet in secret prayer, as much or more, there's a problem. Think of it in proportionality again like a plant. What's beneath the surface, the root structure, personal, private, secret prayer, ought to exceed and really undergird and hold in place that mass which is above the earth and is visible. There should be more secret prayer than corporate prayer, public prayer. Thirdly, and I'm not going to shout because I know I've got this microphone on, B L O U D. Be loud. Why? The principle is given there from 1 Corinthians 14. If you utter speech that is not intelligible, now he's talking about speaking in tongues, but it's the exact same principle, is it not? If it's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? I have to confess I've lost more religion some nights than I've gained at corporate prayer. If you can't hear a thing that's being said, enunciate the words. Project the voice and get it out there. I like the idea in the fourth place that we forego lengthy prayer requests, a.k.a. gossip sessions. You've been to a prayer meeting where the first 30 minutes were spent taking the prayer request that talked about all the ailments and all the sins and all the... And then there are two minutes left at the end in which to actually pray. Jump in and pray. People will figure out the context as we go. A fourth or fifth obvious point is to pray scripture back to God. Hardly time to develop that thought, but in our adoration, having psalms that we have laid to heart and to memory, having confessions that go to the division of bone and marrow, Pray God's word back to him. In the next place, don't be shy. I've got to tell you one very quick story. Uh, and we've got about five minutes left. Major Stonewall Jackson, when he was, uh, this was in the years just prior to the start of the Civil War, uh, was living in Lexington, Virginia. He was a member of Lexington Pres uh, Presbyterian Church. And he was regularly going to the prayer meetings on Wednesday nights at Lexington Presbyterian Church, but he would never participate. He would never speak up. And let me just read real quickly what happened. His pastor, Pastor White, went to him and exhorted the congregation that they needed to increase faithfulness in attending the weekly prayer meeting. And especially he emphasized the duty of the officers... He was then a deacon in the church, Stonewall Jackson, to lead in prayer at those meetings. Jackson immediately went to the pastor after the service and said, Do you mean I should pray at the meetings? And the pastor said, Yes, you should do so. So the pastor waits a few weeks, gives Jackson time to prepare, and then one night at the Wednesday meeting calls on Stonewall Jackson to pray. And this is what is said. 
The experience was not only painful to Jackson, but also excruciating to all who were in the meeting. As a result, White, the pastor, decided that he would not call on Jackson again because he was a faithful deacon and he did not want to chase him out of the prayer meetings. Jackson, however, would not stand for it. After a few weeks, Jackson confronted the pastor and said, Are you avoiding calling on me in prayer in order to remove my embarrassment? And the pastor said, Well, I can't deny it. Yes, I am. You don't need to do that anymore. And this is what Jackson said. Yes, but my comfort or discomfort is not the question. If it is my duty to lead in prayer, then I must persevere in it until I learn to do it aright. And I wish you to discard, Pastor, all consideration of my feelings. So the pastor consented, and after a while, Jackson regularly prayed, and it was later said he was as eminent for the gift of prayer as he was for the grace that he had displayed. It's not a measure of my comfort that is to be considered. Next point, be comfortable with silence. I said when we looked a while ago at Revelation 8, there will be silence at times in heaven, reverential. Let all creatures bow in silence before him. Let every, how does the hymn go? Earth keep silent. The weight of reverential silence and awe before our maker. If there are times in our prayer time when there's a gap, it ought not feel awkward. Yes, it's great if someone jumps in and does pray. It's great, however, if they don't. It does not matter. John Bunyan once said, In prayer it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. Silence is okay. A couple of other things. Don't monopolize. Pray for one thing. That's a good general rule of thumb. Pick the youth. Pick the music ministry. Pick the pastors. Pray for that one thing. I. What should I be listening to or thinking about when others are praying? Which will be the majority of the time, right? We pray a little bit. We mainly listen to others. Concentrate. Give inward assent and if it needs to be verbal please do so yes amen or as one that I love to pray with I won't reveal the name mm-hmm. give assent in one's heart avoid the ruts variety is good to keep things refreshing Make corporate prayer a priority and a habit. There's a great book on the New York Times bestseller list last year, 2014. I don't remember the name of the author. It's just a secular book, but it's powerful. The Power of Habit. The Power of Habit. Get it and read it. Know that prayer can be hard work. Dr. Ferguson used to have a phrase or an expression that I loved. Speaking about corporate prayer and how it's not as well attended or popular as some other things during the course of the week. And he would say, everyone wants to light the fuse. Nobody 
wants to dig the mine. And it's digging the mine on Wednesdays and Sunday nights and Sunday mornings before we gather at 8.30 or at 11.15 that allows one the gift of lighting the fuse. And then last, all of these are simply principles, not rules. Let the Spirit move. On Sunday mornings, one of the highlights of the week, 8 a.m., the session gathers for prayer in the session room. Normally, there's a particular man there, again, I won't say his name, who's very meek, who's very quiet. He always prays, but he usually prays in a very soft voice and for about 15 seconds. One Sunday morning a couple of years ago, he began to pray, and he became more emotional, and his voice became a little more raised, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And everyone was perfectly in tune with what was happening at that moment. No rules, let the Spirit move, and the Spirit was moving. God, give us grace that we together recognize, experience the power and the privilege of corporate prayer. Let me close this time for us in prayer. We'll take a break. Let any who would like to leave go ahead and do so, uh, and then be ready to jump into our corporate prayer time in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, what an unspeakable privilege you have given us to allow us to draw near to the throne of grace. Grant now, Father, for the sake of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, that you will take your eternal truths and write them upon our hearts. Give us freedom in new experience of the power and the privilege of praying together. And we ask it in the Savior's name. Amen.